I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. My mom always said, if you keep playing this hard, someone's going to get hurt. And on a day like today, where the Dow dipped 55 points, S&P inched down 0.09%, and NASDAQ declined 0.21%, it sure feels like my mom is in charge of this market. I say that because there are parts of this economy that are so red hot, I mean steaming, that somebody is going to get hurt if they don't cool down. And I don't want it to be you. How is it that a strong economy can actually hurt us? Okay, listen up. For the first eight years after the Great Recession, the Federal Reserve had one goal, get the economy humming again. Then a couple of years ago, the Fed decided the economy was healthy enough to come off life support, so they started raising interest rates. Think of it like this. We finally left rehab around the time of the 2016 election, and last year we started walking again. Now, though, the economy is sprinting, and it is dawning on the investors all around the country that the Fed will need to keep raising rates, maybe raise them a bunch of times. That's because when the economy catches fire, you also get inflation, unless the Fed does something to tamp it down. And inflation is absolutely worth worrying about. It's something that I'm always concerned about. It erodes the purchasing power of your money, meaning that if it's allowed to run rampant, your 401k, IRA, are going to be worth a lot less than you think. We need higher interest rates to stave off inflation, but unfortunately, higher rates also make it more expensive to borrow money and thus slow down the economy. In other words, when the economy gets too hot, we have these mechanisms in place that will cause it to cool back down. And that's where you might get hurt. So where are we in this cycle right now? The best way to take the temperature of the economy is with the Labor Department's non-farm payroll report. The April numbers that we got earlier this month were decidedly soft, both in terms of job creation and wage gains, which remain pretty meager, frankly. Here's the thing. While stagnant wages stink for the vast majority of Americans who work for a living, they're actually pretty great for the stock market and the broader economy. The the latest tepid employment report is the umbrella that's enabled this rally to go on. It's given us reason to believe that the Fed won't need to tighten too aggressively. We want them to slow this sprinting economy back to kind of a jog. But if the Fed breaks too hard, like it did during the lead up to the Great Recession, we know that the economy will be thrown right through the windshield. The house of pain. But if the last employment number was weak, then what the heck am I worried about? Okay, this morning we got jobless claims data, and the four-week moving average of these numbers fell by 2,750 to a little over 213,000. That's the lowest jobless claim figure since December 1969. 
when we had 120 million fewer people in this country. Back then, inflation ran incredibly hot, much hotter than now. But of course, our government had more of a guns and butter approach to policy in 69, meaning we spent fortunes to finance the war in Vietnam and the war on poverty. Still, we have to be cognizant of that amazing statistic. And it's not just employment. In the last few days, we've heard from a bunch of retailers like Walmart, Home Depot, JCPenney, and their message was clear. April was an outlier. April was weak because we had cold weather blanketing much of the country. And that bad retail weather ended with May, where it accelerated. As Jane Elfers, the terrific CEO of Children's Place, explained, I quote, Our ability to sell seasonal product in the first quarter was severely hampered by the combination of a record number of winter storms and the unseasonably cold temperatures that persisted across our major markets. She continued, when the weather improved across the country in the 13th week of the quarter, our sales turned aggressively positive. The strong sales momentum has continued, and quarter to date, we are currently running a positive 24%. 24% comp. That's, that's, that's insane. But it totally dovetails with what we're hearing from other retailers. April was an outlier. May is real strong. Too strong. Then there's an indicator I like more than pretty much any other. Coated recycle board, meaning kind of corrugated. The stuff that your Amazon Prime packages are made out of. Yeah, remember it comes in that box? This is what I'm talking about. The producers are trying to put through a $50 ton price increase for this commodity. The second so far this year. What makes this so telling? Look, my late father sold liner board for a living. He always knew when the price increases were coming. And when we got one after another after another, like we did in 1987, it was a fabulous indicator that the economy had kind of gotten out of control. It was just too hot. This gauge was never wrong, people, never wrong. So if we get a bunch of hikes for uh, coated recycle board and they stick, so to speak, in other words, the customers accept it, the Fed will likely need to get more aggressive. I will advise the Fed to get more aggressive. It's not just car again. Lumber's going nuts. It's tripled since 2015. It's just plain parabolic now. Pushed relentlessly higher by the NAFTA talks, or lack thereof. Lumber goes into housing. The home builders are raising prices as there's a dearth of new homes being built, mostly because zoning is much tougher on home builders than it used to be. So they can get away with it, with it but, uh, because inventory's so low but also because they want to pass on the higher raw cost to their customers. Then there's oil. Now, we know the price of crude can fluctuate, but it isn't fluctuating here at all. It's just going straight up. That's a very big deal. Oil's playing havoc in the whole economic food chain because so many products are made with a, with a carbon feedstock. Gasoline's less of an issue, and remember, we typically give oil a pass when it comes to inflation. But when it crosses $70 in the U.S. and approaches $80 overseas, it simply can't be ignored, as is the cost of freight that it also buys. Finally, we have to consider that if the U.S. puts some very big tariffs on China, they'll act as de facto price increases across the board for lots of household items. The inflation will be palpable. Today, the president had some very harsh words on China, the kind of words you don't utter unless you're very far apart in your conversations. It was anything but encouraging, and the stock market took a huge intraday hit when President Trump gave the media a heads up that China's gotten away with way too much, calling them, and I quote, very spoiled on trade. Hey, so why not run for the hills? Right? With that set of facts, why not just exit? Who wants to risk being in the stock market when we might be on the verge of some serious inflation? All right, first of all, it doesn't have to end badly. The Fed can raise rates, kind of be slowed down gently, and we don't need to go through the windshield. Second, there are amazing anti-inflationary forces at work, namely the digitized economy, which just puts endless downward pressure on prices. If the Fed takes the Amazon factor, uh, to use the shorthand, basically, right, the Amazon factor, uh, into account, then these worries will prove to be overblown. 
The Internet is constantly displacing people, so there's no real shortage of workers in major portions of the country. The digital deflation matters. It's what keeps me from saying that it's time for you to raise a ton of cash. Still, the bottom line is that this economy is beginning to play too hard. And we don't want my mother's admonition to become a reality. Let's be aware that May is very strong so far. And as it goes on, we'll begin to forget about what that last week employment number was. And we'll start to focus on a much stronger one that's in the future. That's not something to be happy about in this environment, where good news is most decidedly bad news when it comes to the Fed and much of the stock market. Let's go to Raj in Illinois, please. Raj. Hey, Jim, my question is regarding Barclays. With the recent uh, 5% stake, Sherburn and Ed Bramson has taken, and him requesting the shutdown of the investment bank, and also the spanking Jess Daly took with the whistleblower issue where he tried to hunt down somebody that sent a letter regarding hiring practices. What is your take on that? Um, you know, frankly, hold? I just do not think you need to own Barclays. I mean, it's okay. Uh, we got J.P. Morgan stock, which is just terrific, doing absolutely nothing. Why not buy that one? Why uh, go down the food chain? That's what I would do. Let's go to Lou in Michigan. Lou. Booyah, Jim, from beautiful Salt Free Michigan. All right. Hey, thank you for sticking with us, home gamers. Um, my stock is hunting well. It's been down about $20 since March, and it's kind of been in the doldrums. Uh, is this a buying opportunity, or yes. should we keep it in the yes. penalty box? As I told people uh, who are um, club members of ActionLearnsPlus.com, absolutely. Steve Tusa had an ama- from J.P. Morgan had an amazing piece out talking about Honeywell as being an e-commerce play. It was extraordinarily good, and I think you should pull the trigger <laughs> right here. John in Florida. John. Hi, Jim. It's a pleasure talking to you. Same. My brother is a 20-year Navy veteran and happens to work uh, as a crane operator for a company called Huntington Ingalls, HII in Virginia. And uh, we've been investing together uh, in that company for a few couple of years. It's a big part of his 401k and uh, doing real well. But on May 3rd, the stock took a huge dive of 8% in one day when they missed analyst expectations. In spite of good numbers, it seems like it went all the way down to 207. Since rebounded 220, uh, my brother thinks it's because of growing pains, that they've got a lot of good contracts, they're hiring a lot of people. What's your thoughts? I agree with your brother. One of my absolute favorites, favorite analysts, Jonathan Revive over at City, he recommended it after that decline, said you should pick some up. Bye, bye, bye. I'm with him and with your brother. And tell him thank you for serving. Derek in Pennsylvania. Derek. Hey, Jim. Thanks for all you do. I've watched you every night. Thank My you. My question is about uh, Herbalife. I bought it right before the split Monday at 108. Ducks auction on Tuesday at 54 share. Carl Icon purchased $1.1 million on Wednesday. Went down about a buck thirty today. Should I buy more on the pullback or should I hold? The PE is at twenty four point three. Well, the problem is it's up more than fifty percent uh, for the year, so I am not going to advise that you just come in and start buying it. Let it come in. Uh, uh, honestly, I think it can come in like maybe uh, below fifty. I wouldn't touch it until then. All right, this market's playing too hard. Parts of it are so hot that you don't want to get burned. As this month goes on, I think it'll continue getting stronger. And that's not necessarily good news for the stock market, even though it can be good news for people looking for jobs. On May Money tonight, three major housing-related companies saw their stocks get slammed after the report. But are they built on strong foundations? I'm browsing the aisles to find out. Then, Canada's biggest marijuana company has applied to become the first pot producer to list on the New York Stock Exchange. 
Tonight on Sitting Down with the CEO to find out what's happening. And the declines in the home builders and consumer packaged goods plays are brutal. But are they justified in this environment? Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Now that we've gotten through earnings season, we can take our time to spot patterns, think things through. So here's something that really stood out to me. Three housing-related companies saw their stocks get slammed after they reported. Masco, the maker of cabinets and faucets and windows. Owens Corning, the uh, maker of insulation, Pink Panther, right, and fiberglass composites. And Stanley Black & Decker, the tool maker, all performed pretty darn poorly this quarter. These are three companies whose wares you can find on the shelves of Home Depot which, remember, told us it had a rough quarter because of that unseasonably cold weather, although things did snap back in May. The thing about Masco, Owens Corning, Stanley Black & Decker is that these stocks were all in great shape last year. In fact, from Election Day 2016 to the end of 2017, Masco, Stanley Black & Decker, uh, they both climbed 44%. Owens Corning, this thing was up 90%. However, all three ran out of steam earlier this year, and since then, they've gotten slammed. Masco's down 19% from its January highs. Owens Corning has lost a shocking 32% of its value from its late January peak, although it did go up much higher than the others. And Stanley Black & Decker's off nearly 90% over the same period. That's bear market territory. Ouch! So why exactly have these stocks been so punished? Why were their quarters so poorly received by Wall Street? What's causing the real weakness here? Okay, first I want to go back to early January when J.P. Morgan made what turned out to be a very prescient call, downgrading Masco from overweight to neutral. Their argument simple. They said that while the company had a lot going for it with tax reform and an internal turnaround story, they believe that most of the positives were already baked into the stock price. I think J.P. Morgan nailed this call, even as they were obviously mistaken to reiterate their bullishness on Stanley Black & Decker. In truth, the same argument could have been made about Stanley and Owens Corning, too. All three of these housing-related names had run dramatically, and the good news already seemed to be baked into their stocks. In other words, they were suffering from what we call great expectations. Ex expectations. That's a Dickensian ailment that makes it much harder to generate higher stock prices. When there's a lot of good news baked into your share price, suddenly it's not enough to merely meet Wall Street estimates. You need to blow away the numbers or your stock will get punished. In other words, high hopes are easily dashed. So for Masco to rally further, they needed to give investors something new to be excited about. And again, the same was true for Owens Corning and Stanley Black & Decker. But when they started reporting at the end of January, we got a series of quarters that were good, but not great. Stanley Black & Decker delivered the best numbers of the bunch, a straightforward top and bottom line beat with healthy guidance. But its stock lost nearly 2% on the news. And this was a couple of days before the whole market peaked. Masco delivered an okay quarter. But the only reason it didn't get hit is that it reported right at the bottom, and its stock had already fallen a quick 5% going into the results. Owens Corning came in late February, and again, the numbers were solid. Yet the stock lost 4.8% in a single day. Suddenly, after spending more than a year roaring higher, Masco, Owens Corning, and Stanley Black & Decker were reporting decent numbers, and their stocks were selling off. In other words, 
This is when they became battlegrounds. And you know we don't like battlegrounds when we have money. <clears throat> and look, it's not like this weakness came out of nowhere. It sure didn't help that interest rates had begun to creep higher. Remember, every time you see the yield of the 10-year moving up, that translates into higher mortgage rates, which makes buying a house less affordable. The conventional wisdom is that this leads to fewer new home sales, and that hurts the businesses of the companies that help supply the home builders. At the same time, investors started worrying about rising commodity costs. <coughs> Excuse me. That hurt Masco or uh, Owens Corning and Stanley Decker because they all manufacture stuff and therefore uh, they have raw materials that needs a source. On top of that, they do a lot of business with home builders and contractors. If those guys are getting squeezed by the same rising commodity costs, they're going to have less money to spend on tools of insulation or cabinet. Excuse me. <coughs> hey, it's a real show. I cough, I drink water. <coughs> this is what happens. So these three stocks marked time for most of March and April. When earnings season came around, the onus was on them to prove they could overcome the negative narrative we built up. The one about higher commodity costs and rising mortgage rates. What happened? Well, Staley Black & Decker got the first bite on April 20th. And once again, it reported a nice top and bottom line beat. The guidance unchanged, but still solid. Management talked about 4% company-wide organic growth, backed by 6% organic growth in tools and storage. Hey, if you listen to management, you would have thought this was a strong quarter. But the analysts disagreed. They focused on the company's shrinking margins, which were being compressed by rising raw costs. The other issue, Staley Black & Decker merely maintained its guidance rather than raising numbers. And that's just not good enough in this environment. Hence why the stock lost a shocking $12, nearly 8% of its value over the next two days. I have to tell you, I was blown away by this because I really like this company. Since then, it's failed to sustain any kind of meaningful bounce. It just kind of lies there. A few days later, Masco got, got its shot and it reported a straight up disappointment. A top line beat. They do a lot of this in the kitchen and bath with a big fat earnings miss. Five cents off a 50 cent basis. Here, too, the analysts were unimpressed. No wonder Masco missed the earnings estimates because its gross margin, what they make after the cost of goods sold, dropped by 200 basis points year over year. The culprit, again, raw cost inflation. I keep talking about that. No wonder the stock plunged 8% in a single session. Finally, the next day, we heard from Owens Corning, which delivered the worst quarter of the bunch. The company posted a modest revenue beat on top of a big earnings miss. They They made 80 cents a share. Wall Street was looking for 96 cents. In fact, their earnings shrank by 6% year over year. Uh, Once again, the culprit was obvious. As CEO Mike Thayman explained, inflation negatively impacted margins in all three businesses. Owens Corning saw a 160 basis point decline in its gross margin and also mentioned higher transportation costs as a separate culprit. Oh, boy, the analysts had a field day with this one, slashing their estimates across the board. And the stock quickly lost $8 or 11% of its value. i got to tell you, really, these, these, are, these have been impossible stocks. In short, these quarters played out according to the pattern I laid out at the top of the show. They got too hot, and then they burned up. Since then, though, Wall Street has started to take a more confusing line on these three companies. While some of those continue to slam Masco, Owens, Corning, and Staley, Black & Decker, others have started trying to call bottom, arguing that the pullbacks are overdone. Owens Corning feels like the hardest-fought battleground here. On April 30th, it was downgraded by RBC Capital. The next day, it caught an upgrade from Nomura. Then last week, it was downgraded by Wells Fargo before it was defended again this morning by Jefferies. So where do I come down? Look, these stocks have definitely gotten a lot cheaper. Owens Corning sells for 10 times next year's earnings estimates. Masco sells for 13 times. Stanley Black & Decker sells for 15 times. These are all good companies. 
But with yesterday's not-so-hot April housing starts number, it's hard to recommend these stocks. The only one I would recommend right here is Stanley Black & Decker. It had the best results, and it's the least lever to home builders. It's a fabulous company that's done well regardless of the vicissitudes of the housing cycle over multiple years. But here's the bottom line. Nothing is more lethal than great expectations. When a stock has run dramatically like Masco or Owens Corning or Stanley Black & Decker at the beginning of this year, it really doesn't take much to derail the darn thing. And other than Stanley Black & Decker, these are the kinds of battleground stocks that I think it's best to avoid at least until the smoke clears and the estimates come down to levels that we know can be easily beaten. Let's go to Scott in Florida, please. Scott. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Today? Booyah. Uh, Jim, I want to say thank you for all your dedication and hard work. It's definitely helping to define how I invest. Oh, uh, well, that's Anyways. what we want. We want people to be better investors. Thank you so much. How can I help? Jim, the, the stock I'm calling about is 3M. And uh, considering it's down roughly 30% year to day, and, and I've heard you mention a couple of times that um, it would be good to consider them as a core holding in your portfolio. Um, and, and due to the lack of earnings they've had recently, I was wondering if you still consider them as uh, a good uh, company to be a core position in your portfolio? And furthermore, do you consider them still a buy? At okay, this, point? This, this is really a great question. And I've got to tell you, it has been a very trying time for me with 3M because we saw the CEO, Inga Tulim, when we were out at the, for the Super Bowl, and the stock has just been horrendous since then. What we need to do is see the new CEO. Uh, I happen to think 3M is a great long-term position. I've always felt that way. There are people who really hate the stock. Uh, right now, the Bears are winning. It's a very tough stock. 195 is the last price I bought for the club. ActionLearnsPlus.com. Matt in New York. Matt. Hey, buddy. Yo. Uh, help me out here. How come sure. I can't find one analyst on the globe that likes GE? Because to me, it's a brand-new company. It's totally different. It's the digital manufacturing wave of the future. Uh, it, it coined the Internet of Things, the innovation of 3D printing, healthcare, solar storage cells, the brilliant factories they build. They're trailblazing the revolution well, and like okay, it's but right Matt, under what everyone's noses. Matt, the previous CEO, a lot of people feel he destroyed the company. There have been mistakes, 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 mistakes. But I agree with you now. I think it's more of an oil play, and I am on board with you. I have said that I think the Bears have to capitulate and start recommending the stock. But you have to understand, there was so, so much money lost here that people are just plain afraid that there are still more shoes to drop. Thank you for both questions. Both very good. Just because a stock was once a terrific performer doesn't mean they'll always be the case. Masco Owens, Courtney, and Stanley, Blecker, Stanley Black & Decker have become battleground stocks, and I think it's best to avoid them other than SWK. All right, much more mad money. In July, Canada will become the second nation in the world where recreational cannabis is legalized for the entire country. What does it mean for the largest marijuana producer? I'm going to sit down with the CEO of Canopy Growth. Then, could the drop in the home builders and consumer packaged good plays make them a buy? Or is it best to steer clear? Don't make a move before hearing my take. And from cars to refrigerators to packaged goods, Trinzia's materials create products that touch lives every day. So is it time to consider the company for your portfolio? I'm going to talk to the CEO. So stick with Kramer. Last month, we told you about the first U.S. listing of a pure play on the cannabis market, and that's Cronus Group. Remember, I warned you. 
that as hot as the marijuana market may seem right now, your profits here are likely to go up in smoke. That's because legalization is terrible for the pot pricing. This stuff is only expensive because it's against the law. In states that have legalized it for a recreational use, the prices keep falling. But now we have another different kind of company. We're talking about a Canadian cannabis company that could soon be listed on a major U.S. exchange, Canopy Growth Corp. It's applied to trade on the NYSE under the symbol CGC. Canopy is one of the market's leaders in the marijuana business. You might remember them as the company that Kramer Fave Constellation Brands took a 10% stake in last fall. For now, they don't do business in the U.S. because their business is still legal here at the federal level. But they're up and running in Canada, and they they sell the stuff all over the world, and you can invest in the stock without breaking the law. question is, should you? Uh, on the one hand, I'm skeptical about the industry, but on the other hand, I'm a believer in Constellation Brands, and they seem to believe in this particular company. So let's take a closer look with Bruce Linton. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Canopy Growth to learn more about his company and its prospects. Mr. Linton, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Hey, thank you. How are you? Awesome, man. Thank all right. You. Now, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you run a very straightforward consumer packaged goods company. That's how I look at okay. it, just like any other. Is that what may have attracted uh, Rob Sands to it? Well, I think maybe we shared a, a bigger vision than that, right? Consumer tastes are what drive both of us. So if their preference is for cannabis and that's what they want to have, then how do we drive to it? But additionally, I have a big medical division. Right. So it's, it's sort of a, a bit more diversified. Now, uh, it is true from the work that I've done that, that alcohol pr- uh, uh, use does drop dramatically where uh, cannabis is legal. Yeah, you know, it's a little early in Canada to say that because we're just going from medical to recreational, and that'll come up in uh, September. Mm -hmm. But I think the big driver will be is, imagine working with Constellation and creating a set of beverages that rather than being driven by calories and alcohol, you can actually deliver what probably turns into a bit of euphoria, a bit of pleasantness, and no extra calories. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because in many ways, I think that that's going to be a fabulous market. And uh, Because it, it, in many ways, look, it doesn't wait, cause the calories of yeah. a beer or, or a regular soda. Yeah, and you know, if you, you think about it, if you can knock the calories out, if you can reduce the drug-on-drug interaction, so you can actually go to the demographic who got a little heavier right. but got a little richer while getting there. Um, they're probably taking some pill for pressure or whatever, and now we fit into you know part of their weekend regime. That's great. Okay, let's talk about the societal issues here. Uh, our country is. I'm going to be my daughter for a second, who's yeah. from Oregon and works in the mental health field with troubled youth. Uh, they would love if there is a there is a belief in that field that I think I've come around to that the, the, the country's actually encouraged opioids until very recently. And if, had, if it had been like, say, in Philadelphia, where it would have been cannabis, then there wouldn't be so many kids that we'd have to treat. Yeah, you know, th- this whole notion of swapping is one thing, educating is another. And if you get used to buying cannabis from one guy, you know, I'm talking true black market, are you getting accustomed to getting other things from him? So I think cannabis is a huge disruptor to the opioid guys. It's a, a very big disruptor in terms of what people might even think about uh, benzodiazepines, sleep aids. Right. There's a bunch of places this will disrupt, and it can because it's been kept way back from science. And up in Canada, we've got about three or 400,000 Canadians who are medical patients in a federal program, so we can start doing intellectual property filing, and we can actually make uh, what I'll call really different products. So uh, you're in Germany, too, yep. right? And how's the reception? Well, uh, in Germany, it's socialized medicine. So if you go to your doctor now, as of uh, about the last 13 months, what the doctor can say is, I will prescribe cannabis to you, and you go to the pharmacy and pick it up. So we have about 1,000 pharmacies that have the canopy product, and about 75% of the time, the federal government in Germany pays for their cannabis. So you can imagine there's a chance that could catch on. 
No, look, it makes sense. When my mom was dying of cancer in her 50s, the doctor said, listen, you got to get her pot. And yeah. I said, I don't know anything about that market. But that was the that was in the 80s they yeah. believed in it. Well, you know, the, part of it, and I'm sorry for your mom, but, you know, when we think about what we could do better, um, when you're going through an oncology treatment, uh, there's one thing to manage nausea. But imagine I have this str- couple of strains that the joke about getting the munchies might be true. Now, it's not a joke if I can turn that into a co-treatment with oncology. Right. And if you could actually leave the hospital feeling hungry, and through those periods of when you would have others been nauseous, actually have an appetite. So there's, those are the scientific possibilities that you know, we're looking at. We start with dogs and we move our way up. Now, you have many different... Dogs have a lot of pain and we don't know what to do about it. Correct. Dogs, and you know what, vets hands out buckets of opioids. And so there's a way to actually deal with that big dog in the last year of its life that we think is a really smart way, which could involve a cannabis solution. And it will have THC, but it might make the dog a little more mobile, a little less anxious and a little more hungry. And that's a good dog. Okay, I was going to ask you about THC versus CBD. I yep. see from your offerings you can get either. Yep. Um, there are a lot of people who believe that, it, that uh, pure hemp oil is already kind of legal, but they're afraid. Yeah. What's your line on pure CBD versus uh, THC? So, you know, we basically have both. So if you come right. to uh, us in Canada, you can get pure CBD. And the effect is that they'll use it for, like, uh, tremors and management of that. Sure. But what we're doing is we're taking why people buy it. We're asking them, running through a grid. And now we're taking that as the way we set up our clinical trials. So, you know, I come back in a year. Wouldn't it be better if I can tell you the indication I got a response to, the dosage and the delivery mechanism? And so we're focused on following it right through because, you know, calling it medical marijuana without doing the medical trials isn't really fair. But to exclude it as an option is kind of foolish, and that's where we jump in. But one last question, and I think people need to know this. There is a belief among very good doctors that the kind of, of pot that is currently on medicinal in a lot of states that are really not good is not regulated enough. Yours is exactly the specification, right? Mine meets not just the Canadian standards, but we were inspected on how we produce it by the German pharmaceutical standards. It's called GMP-1. So if I make a gel cap, it's made by the German pharmaceutical standard. If I extract an oil, to the same standard. And so when you start with a really rigorous at-scale mm-hmm. production platform, whether or not I'm going to make a beverage with Constellation or make a very disruptive medical product, you've got to come from the ground up with quality. All right. Well, what I'm going to tell people is, look, if you want to invest in this group, it is going to be most likely that you should use Canopy Growth Corporation. It's a real company with real revenues and a great investor in Rob Sands of Constellation. That's Bruce Linton. He's founder, chairman, CEO of Canopy Growth Corporation. Look for it on the New York Stock Exchange. May have money's back after the break. Is there any value at all to owning a home builder in this rising interest rate environment? Can any consumer packaged goods company buck the gravitational pull of the 10-year Treasury run amok? As rates go higher, these stocks have been mauled by the bears, even as they're coming off a very low base now. And unfortunately, these declines are inexorable. The home builders and the consumer packaged goods names are like spewing volcanoes. You don't want to be hit by their lava. In the consumer product space, Procter & Gamble, Clorox, and PepsiCo are all down about 20%. Staggering. Kraft Heinz has shed 25%. General Mills has lost 28%. Over on the home building side, KB, Horton, and Lennar are all off 20%. 
Your strongest performers among the majors in each sector are pretty pathetic. Coca-Cola down 8%, Pulte down 11%. The only stock in either group that's actually unscathed is Estee Water, with an actual 14% gain. How did it buck the trend? Simple. It's not really considered a consumer packaged goods company anymore. Estee Lauder is now viewed as a prestige brand, and those are typically the province of overseas fashion companies that tend to be very highly valued, like Richemont, LVMH, category unto itself. Is there anything that can change these negative trajectories? With the home builders, it's very unclear. They continue to put up good numbers, and the stocks continue to go down anyway. It's not like they're missing the estimates. It's not like they're missing the forecast. It's not like they're cutting growth rates. We're seeing high huge spikes in raw costs. In fact, the margins are unusually strong for this point in the business cycle. Ah, but there's the magical curse word, cycle. No institutional money manager wants to buck the business cycle. If you buy a home building stock and we actually get a big shortfall, well, you have to expect that stock will lose another 10% in a single session, if not more. There's no yield protection to speak of here. There's no consolidation wave coming, at least not that I can tell. There's no savior until interest rates overshoot and come back down. And that's going to be an awful long time in coming. Long story short, investors are naturally afraid of the home builders at a time when mortgages keep getting more expensive. <clears throat> that's all she wrote. Yeah, it doesn't matter how good they are or, or how good even one of them is. Now, the consumer packaged goods plays face different challenges. Raw costs are going up. Tastes seem to be changing. Companies can't seem to generate organic growth that's genuinely appealing versus what you can get by owning stocks that are more levered to a robust economy. The power shifted to the producers, not the consumers. Unlike the home builders, though, at least these stocks have some yield protection. These consumer product stocks seem to stop thawing when their yields go to about 4%. At that price, it looks like there are speculators who say, OK, these are overdone. If I hold on long enough, either the economy will slow and rates will stop climbing and raw costs will drop or the companies will do some self-help. That's how I feel about PepsiCo. With its shares down 18%, but a yield of almost 4%. Plus, PEP has excellent growth and great management, which is why we own it for my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Right now, though, I worry that the results here don't really matter, as the group is simply out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show. They're what I used to call at my old fun down stocks. They're down stocks. I would say that they don't know how to go up. They're down stocks. It's nothing new for the housing stocks, but the packaged goods, I've seen them slip. uh, You know, let's say they got clobbered in the spring of 87 when money poured out of them and into the cyclicals. But it wasn't this bad. This is new bad. Normally, I'm enticed when I see such large declines. The managements of both groups are good. The brands in the consumer business are excellent. But brand loyalty is eroding. Advertising isn't working as well as it used to. And millennials just don't do what their parents did. Put it all together. That's and it spells a degree of difficulty that makes these stocks too hard to own until rates stabilize or raw costs plummet or they get to a 4% yield, and most of them just don't have what it takes right now to make that kind of stand. So for now, you should be very select if you want to own one of these, sticking with those that have yield protection. But no matter what, you need to know there are a lot easier ways to make money. Stick with Kramer. It is time. It's time for the play. Let's go to the referee. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Craig in New York. Craig. El Taba. 
Okay, well, that's the uh, the stub of uh, Yahoo. It's been a terrific one, and I got to tell you, I like it. Hey, bye. how about the uh, Balzun? Remember we had that one? What a, what a horse. Let's go to Noel in New York. Noel. Hey, Kramer, how you doing? I'm calling about Lloyd's Bank, ticker L-Y-G. That's okay. It. You know, I mean, it's, it's a $3 stock. Everybody likes a $3 stock. I prefer J.P. Morgan. It's a $113 stock. Let's go to Michael in California. Michael. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I'm a beginning listener getting into all this stuff. I'm a, currently a nursing student here at PCC, and my question is about Vistra Energy. Uh, I got in, and I'm kind of curious, when should I get out? I'm right now at a 71% profit. Well, when we'll tell I, you what we're going to do. do. We're going to sell half right here, and we're going to let the rest run. And congratulations. Uh, that's a pretty good situation. Let's go to Eric in Maryland. Eric. Jim, how's it going? I'm calling about H-E-A-R, Turtle Beach, Corp. Is it going to keep going up or is it going down? I see this stock trading underneath our uh, ticker every single day. It trades like water. I have to do some work on this thing because this thing was like worth nothing. And now it's up by 800%. I cannot opine without doing more work. Let's go to John in Florida. John. Yeah, hi, Jim. John Kay in Dundee, Florida. Hey, John, how you been? All right. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Jim. Thank you. Same. Uh, Jim, uh, with respect to the new Supreme Court ruling uh, regarding uh, gaming, what do you think about uh, international gaming technology, IGT? Well, I got to tell you something, John. When I see this, everybody kind of knows already that it's great. So I I can't recommend it because it already happened. There's no catalyst for me. Everyone's decided it's already good. Need more people to come in to take you out. I don't see it happening. Let's go to Chris in Florida. Chris. Hi, Jim. Thanks for all your help navigating this market. Love You're Confessions welcome. of a Street Addict. It was a great read. Oh, thank you. Still sells a lot. I just got a nice royalty check. Thank you. All right. My, my wife and I have a 10 to 15-year time horizon. We've owned Regions Financial for the last 10 years. We sold half last year for a nice profit. It seems to be spinning its, wheel, its wheels now. Should we just hold on to it yes, and let it ride? Yes, yes, yes. A, it's a great bank, and it's had a very big run. It's consolidating the run, and then I think you'd go higher as the Fed keeps raising rates. You've got a good one, and congratulations. Dave in Maryland. Dave. Yes. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, Jim, thank you for all your wisdom that you give to us. Thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. My stock is Clarity TE, symbol COOL, C-O-O-L. Regenerative medicine is a very hard medicine. The stock is very hard to be able to obtain. The stock has had a very big run. I say, ka-ching, ka-ching, Geo in Pennsylvania, Geo. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. You are the shock jock of stock, and I've watched since day one. Thank but you. But my favorite segment is the one when you eulogized your father, Pop, you including bet. your discussion of successfully confronting the no-name insurance company to make them do the right thing. Yes, I sure Thank did. You. Thank you. Jim, my stock, you have recommended many times. Lately, it's kind of been wandering, uh, drifting slightly lower, and I'm concerned technically as it's below all of its major averages. Jim, is Banco Santander still a buy, buy, buy? Banco Santander has been struggling along with the rest of Europe. I will say this. The numbers are good and Spain is strong, but Europe is a terrible place to invest right now. I say we're fine. Not great, not bad. And thank you for the kind comments about Pop. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
do with a commodity chemical company in an environment where people are still pretty worried about global trade, especially today when the president was, I say, trashing China. At the beginning of March, I recommended Trinzio. That's a Philadelphia-based maker, well, actually Berwyn, of plastic products, synthetic rubber, latex binders, along with basic building block commodities like uh, polystyrene and uh, polyethylene, because this is exactly the kind of company that thrives in a strong economy. But I didn't see the president's trade dispute with China coming. And I think that's hurt the stock. And Because tr- Trinzio gets 20% of its sales from the People's Republic. But I have to wonder if it's been punished too much here. In part, that's because we may end up reaching an accommodation with the Chinese. But mainly it's because Trinzio reported a darn good quarter two weeks ago. It turns out business is good and the stock has been bouncing ever since. I wouldn't be surprised if it had more room to run. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with Chris Pappas. He's the president and CEO of Trinzio. Find out more about how his company's doing, where it's headed. Mr. Pappas, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. How are you? Nice to see you. Have a seat. All right, so we were talking at the top of the show that there are companies that are doing incredibly well, but there's worries about a slowdown because rates are going up, or there's worries about Chinese trade. Trinzio really does fit that, doesn't it? Well, we had a record quarter, as you know, as you pointed out, and um, we actually gave guidance on our earnings call just two weeks ago that we'd have earnings this year of $9.06 a share, which, which would be another record three years in a row. So we see the economy actually quite good around the world. Right. So we don't see anything changing. Now, do you have to check every tweet and worry about what the president's meetings say with, uh, with, you know, we have Secretary Mnuchin involved? These things do matter for you. Well, we have business in China. I think this might be the, the focus, but, um, but our business in China is local. And uh, so we make product there, we sell product there. So we're not really, in fact, impacted by the trade issues that may or may not come out of, you know, whatever comes out of that. Okay, and, and that's, that's true good. around the world. Almost everything we make, we make locally, the United States, Europe, China. And we sell it there. Our products don't move around the world that much. Now, it's important for people to know you don't, you make uh, pellets, you make a form. You don't, you're not making the appliance plastic. That's not what you do. You're not making the graphical paper. It's your supply. Absolutely. We supply either a liquid polymer or a pellet polymer that people make a part out of. For example, a refrigerator liner, a tire, high-performance tire. That's a market we're in. Great market, growing 7 8% per year. Who, who uses high-performance tire versus just regular commodity? Well, today, 50% of the tires on the road have moved over a period of about eight years to high-performance tires. These tires get better gas mileage, roll better, and raise the efficiency of a car. Now, when Dallas uh, spun the company off in another form, mm-hmm. uh, there was far more commodity than there is now, right? These aren't, that's not a commodity product for a high-performance tire. No, it turns out today, um, based on the, the call we had a couple weeks ago, we guided to about $675 million of EBITDA, and about 480 of that, Jim, is what we would call generally not commoditized. Right. The rest is somewhat commoditized, and it is subject to supply-demand dynamics that would drive margin, like any commodity. Okay, so a lot of times people are saying, hey, Dow, DuPont, that's levered to the price of oil, goes up when oil goes up. What is your relation to feedstock? Because a lot of that Dow is kind of a myth. I want to be sure we got Trinzio right in terms yeah, of feedstock. Yeah, oil up, oil down on our commoditized side of the business, 25 or so percent mm-hmm. of the earnings. The driver of profitability there is operating rate. The operating rate of the commodity, styrene monomer, drives profitability, not the price of oil. On the other side of the company, generally we pass through feedstock. So if we make a pellet for a synthetic uh, tire, Mm -hmm. we pass the commodity fluctuations through and we have fixed margins. So we have contracts with our customers that take the price of the inputs, add a margin to it, 
And if the inputs go up, the margin stays the same. If the inputs go down, the margin stays the same. Oh, it's important for people to know that not all chemical companies are equal. For instance, PPG, which company we have on a lot, they're being squeezed. Now, they're producing paint that goes to a, yeah, yeah, to a, to a Home Depot. You're not producing anything like that that's going to get squeezed. Well, as I said, our customers, generally, we have contracts that say to them, if the raw material goes up, um, our margin stays the same, but the price moves up according to the raw material, and if it goes down. And for our business, for our customers, that's turned out to be a good model. All right, but how about capacity utilization? Let's say everybody decides, hey, listen, this Tringia is making a lot of money. I'm going to put up plants, make what they make. We'll make a killing. Yeah. I mean, that can be an issue. Well, that would be an issue, particularly in this place we call styrene monomer. And there are announced capacities coming in China in that commodity. And as we said on our earnings call a couple of weeks ago, we've looked at that, and we believe the operating rates for that commodity are going to stay about where they've been over the last two or three years, even in the forward two or three years. So we don't see that new capacity as having a big impact on that dynamic. All right, one last question. There'll be a certain point where you're just spewing cash. If this continues and people continue to think that Trinzio is going to get hurt when it won't, what will you do with all that cash? Well, we've had a good balanced use of cash, I think, Jim. We've returned about $430 million of cash to shareholders since we went public in, July, in uh, June of 2014. So we've been pretty good about returning cash to shareholders, dividend, which we've increased, share buybacks, and we've been investing. We've been investing in growth in those more specialty-oriented Perfect. products. And that's basically been our capital allocation. Program. Well, that's exactly what we want. That's Chris Pappas. He's president and CEO of Trinzio. We recommend it. Okay, we didn't see the trade war coming. But you know what? There's a lot more to this story than that. Man Money's back in the break. Technology stock's getting very hard here. Applied Materials, after the bell, reports that orders are not as robust as a lot of people thought. That's going to put pressure on the group, also put pressure on Lamb Research. What an interesting spin over what we had just yesterday. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.